I guess this is one of those moments where I completely regret the size of the text that I'm going to be talking on today. Um, it didn't quite look this big on the computer screen. But it's okay. We'll just unpack it verse by verse, and we'll be down about two. So, no, I'm just kidding. Um, let us read our text from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Listen. This is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. Immediately the flow of blood dried up And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he, Jesus, looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping, wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithe kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately... The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and, there were, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Let us pray for illumination as we consider this text today. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we get um, glimpses like this where we could see what it looks like when your redemption takes place, what it looks like when restoration takes place, what it looks like when healing takes place, and how you did that through the person and work of your son. I pray, Lord, that you will just align my human words to your divine words. And and if there is anything that I should say that is not from you, I just pray that you will close the ears of those listening or close my mouth pray that we will be edified by this text and equipped for living in this beautiful but broken world. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, most people, Christians and non-Christians, know the story about the fall, about Adam and Eve in the garden, about their disobedience biting fruit. Um, But we don't really stop to really reflect on the implications of the story, what it truly means for this world, what it means about the extent of the fall, about how it goes beyond just us, not just our sin and our brokenness, but in the wake of the fall, how it destroys relationships, humanity's relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with nature. And the text that we're considering today kind of comes at the end of several scenes that Mark kind of lays out that surveys this fallenness. At the very end of chapter 4, we see Jesus calming the storm that terrifies even the most seasoned fishermen. Then we see Jesus healing this demoniac. And then we have this text today where Jesus heals this woman of an illness and then interacts with death. And what Mark is doing is he's sort of laying out this landscape and showing Jesus' lordship, Jesus' authority, Jesus' power in healing over all the aspects of this world that are broken, from what is natural and broken in nature to what is supernatural and oppressive with the demoniac, to what is broken with our bodies in illness and ultimately in death. And sort of this, this thing ranging from impersonal things that affect us all the way to very personal things that affect us. Now, this text can be challenging because obviously, as we see, it's a very long one. And there's a story within this larger story. But both of these stories are interdependent and need to go together. That this story in the middle, and luckily Eric printed it so that you could see, um, from verse 24 through 34, um, the story of the woman, and how that even illuminates and helps us understand the larger story regarding Jairus' daughter. But what we see in this passage has to do with healing, has to do with faith, has to do with fear. And that's what I want us to consider today is first, the need for healing, second, the fear of healing, and then finally, the faith in the healer, the healer we must have faith in. So the need for healing, the fear of healing, and the healer we must have faith in. So when we think about the need for healing, it's pretty easy to see in this text. We see it in the condition of this woman and then in the little girl. Let's reread verse 26 as we think about this woman that she had this illness for 12 years and that she had suffered much under many physicians and spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Could you imagine what this would look like for 12 years? It would have just started out meaning that she was just ceremonially unclean, that she was forbidden to go to worship, barred from where the presence of God is, But then in trying to seek remedies, she spent all she had. So she probably ended up homeless. And not only was she just ceremonial unclean, but her uncleanliness would also meant that any who came in contact with her would also be made unclean. So people would have to start avoiding her. And you could see that over the course of 12 years, it probably got to be too inconvenient to spend time with her. So she was probably avoided forgotten, ostracized, 
by the community. Now, where is that in the text? Well, I think it's implicit, because think about it. These reports about Jesus went out. She heard them. But where were her friends? Where was her family saying, we are hearing these amazing reports of Jesus and that he is healing people. Let me go to him for you. She had no one go to Jesus for her. Could you imagine that pain that she probably felt and the distance she felt from friends, from family, from community, probably even the pain she felt in her distance from God, where at best he was distant, if not indifferent, to her entire situation. Where she ended up in this place where she had to feel rejected, defiled, alienated, and outside of her own community. And now we have a contrast and foil with another place where healing is needed. And that's with the little girl. Now what's interesting is at the very end of this passage, Mark tells us how old she was, for she was 12 years old. Now most people would just gloss over that fact, but I think it's interesting to think about both of these conditions taking place over 12 years. What that meant was for that woman who was forgotten about, ostracized, and in effect losing more and more of her life every year for 12 years, there was this little girl growing up and gaining more and more of her life over 12 years. And we read that she was the daughter of the synagogue ruler. So think in terms of a pastor's kid. All the special privileges that comes along with that. That the congregation sees her, knows her. They've seen her grow up. She's at all the potlucks, running around before service. And you see the entire community rallying around her. You see the father who is willing to go out and wait on the shores for Jesus to come. You see the way that the disciples get on board and they're so excited that they are going to see this healing take place. That they're upset with Jesus when he starts asking questions about who touched him. And then even as all this is unfolding, we see others from the house come and tell Jairus what is happening and then when they get to the house, they see even more people mourning and wailing. There is this overwhelming community sense of what is happening here with this little girl and the entire community rallying around her. And that is the effects of the brokenness and how it truly does affect a community. There cannot be a situation where there is illness where there is pain, where there is death, where it doesn't affect a Christian community. And in a sense, it is suffering that is foundational for the Christian community. This is what one theologian says. He says, it is suffering that was foundational for the Christian community. That suffering brought the community together and what brings the community to the cross of Christ, where the Son of God, Jesus, suffered himself. So what Mark does is that in presenting this overwhelming need of healing, he shows us this contrast between this woman who lost church, who lost friends, who lost family, and this little girl who grew up in the church, had all this family and all these friends and all these community. But what ultimately happens? The little girl dies. 
the final mark of death, of the fall of death. And if we truly stop and soften our hearts to what is happening here in the text, the need for healing is overwhelming because we see that it's personal, but it's more than personal, it's communal. It's physical, but it's also emotional and it's spiritual. And when you are faced with that much need, that much pain, what is our most common response? It's fear. And we see fear in this passage in two places, in the woman and also in the father. Now, what's interesting is in the woman, the fear comes when she is found out. In contrast to the father who's afraid of his daughter not being healed, this woman is afraid when she is healed. And we see in verse 33 what she does. She comes before Jesus in fear and trembling and fell down before him. Think about how terrifying this must have been for her. That her daily rhythms for the past 12 years have been in complete isolation. And now all of a sudden, she's at the middle of this crowd, all eyes on her, and she is talking. But Jesus wanted her to. Jesus wanted her to share. When it says that she shared the whole truth, that's the Greek translation for like, she went this American life and really told her whole entire story. And Jesus wanted to hear that. And I love that, that we have, a, we have a God who cares about our lives, who cares about our stories, who cares about the whole truth in our lives. And Jesus does this to her, I think, for several reasons. I think the first thing is that, I mean, when you read what she thinks here, that if I just touch his garments, I will be made well, I think Jesus needed to correct this almost magic-like superstition that she has concerning this he- healing. I think it's also important that this community that has ultimately rejected her can see her and embrace her and make her a part of her own. And to also show, and I think this is important to us, what happens when Jesus comes in contact with things that are unclean, the things that shame us? The reverse happens. Rather than Jesus being made unclean, Jesus brings cleansing. And yet, how many times do we do that with our own shame? when we think back to our stories and we're embarrassed and we like to kind of clean things up first and then present it to God and Jesus? No. We need to be able to go to him, and he wants us to go to him exactly in those moments. But then also, I think it's to show Jairus something. Jairus needed to see how Jesus would bring back his girl to the community as well and to show that uncleanliness is no object to him. So there's the fear in the woman, but now let's turn to Jairus, the father. Now, the father's role is interesting because aside from Jesus, a couple of the disciples, he's the only one that is mentioned by name. Neither the woman nor the little girl is mentioned by name, but he is. And I think that it's because we all can relate to that position of the father that fear of healing, that fear of what is happening next, of what will happen. And I think that we see his fear truly happen 
in the interruption when Jesus stops to talk to this woman. Could you imagine how the scene would have unfolded with the entire community, the disciples, Jesus, just making a beeline to this little girl and then having this interruption happen with this woman? Now, this may surprise you guys because I have the body of a neglected college student, but I served in the military, and uh, before our unit was deployed, they made me um, a combat lifesaver, which is, if you're a combat medic up here, and basic first aid is here, I'm somewhere in this lower tier to where still you did not want me helping you out if things were wrong. Um, But one of the things that they really drilled into us is the need for triage, for diagnosing things, and the importance and priorities of certain situations. Um, if someone rolled their ankle is in pain, but then you compare it with someone who has a gunshot wound, um, that, that's a little bit more important, and that kind of needs more attention than the rolled ankle. So in this scene here, how does it not feel a little like malpractice on Jesus' part, that there is this, this little girl at the point of death But then there's this woman who's had this thing for 12 years. She'd probably be fine the next day, probably even in several days, probably even for several more years. But yet he stops. Could you imagine, as this scene was unfolding, for the father to wait as Jesus talked to this woman and she continually gave her story and it kept going and she kept talking and they kept waiting around So much so that other people had to come from the house and just say, it's too late. It's not worth it. But ultimately, Jairus needed to see this woman be healed and Jesus' response to her. And what's encouraging in this text is that we have this another contrast between the father who cannot save contrasted by the one who can save. And that's why I don't think it's just an accident that Jesus, in referring to the woman, what does he call her? Daughter. Probably a term of endearment that that woman had not heard. Nothing so intimate and loving as daughter in 12 years. And that's what Jesus says to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus wanted everyone at that moment, watching this this scene unfold, and those of us reading this text to see the healing father. And that is why, what does Jesus do next with Jairus? He commands him. He tells Jairus, do not fear, but believe. In other words, have faith. This woman's faith has healed her. Now, Jairus, you have faith. And that is the proper response that we need to see. The proper response to fear is faith. And not just ambiguous faith, but faith in the healer. When he talks about the faith of the woman and then commands Jairus to have faith, it's important for us to know. Because faith, ultimately, is not an abstract thing. It's not an ambiguous thing. One of the things that I love about how bizarre the Pacific Northwest is, is that you see all this weird new age spirituality. Um, Just two weeks ago, I was talking to someone at a coffee shop in their very enlightened way, they just said, you know, I just have faith in faith. I have no idea what that means. And that's not what the Bible teaches us either. It's not abstract, but it's deeply personal. Um, as we see on the next page in our confession of faith, um, we have this shorter catechism. 
and it talks about things of our faith that is important and talks about the nature of faith in this wonderful question. When it's talking about what is saving faith, what is faith in Jesus Christ, well, what is it? It, We receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. See, the nature of faith is to receive something. It is an instrument. We are saved by what faith receives. Now, I think a good way to sort of illustrate this is that if we think about car keys for a second, if I just, my car keys are down there, but if I just have car keys, that's it, I travel at the same exact speed as I could walk or run. Those car keys do nothing for me. But when I actually use those car keys in a car, when those car keys are receiving their intended purpose and utilizing the benefits of the car, then I can go somewhere, travel fast, make it all the way from Corvallis up to Hillsborough in a morning even. And that's what faith does. Is that faith receives Jesus himself, what he has done. And what's so encouraging, I think, in this text that we see is the faith of the woman. Our faith, like her, may not be perfect. It might be weak. Our faith might be defiled. It might be contaminated even by sinful impulses, misconceptions. But what makes faith in Jesus absolutely wonderful is that despite how imperfect and lacking our faith may be, the object of our faith is absolutely perfect. And that's what Jesus is commanding Jairus to. He's saying, you came to me in faith. You were trusting me then. Don't stop believing. Look at who I am. And who is he? He is a loving God. He is the father who heals. He is the one that loves the marginalized within the community. He is the one who loves those celebrated within the community. He is the one who loves the entire community. And we see it, I think, most fully and how he heals. And I love how we have these two scenes here about how he heals. First, for the woman. We see in verses 28 um, through 30. Uh, let's just skip to 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd. We see this transaction occurring. That Jesus lost power so that this woman could receive healing power. And it is this type of sacrificial, self-giving love that characterizes the ministry of Jesus and ultimately climaxes on the cross where he goes there. We talked about that this woman lived for years, rejected, defiled, and outside of the community. But what's amazing is that in Hebrews 13, it talks about Jesus suffering outside of the gate, outside of the community, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus bore the ultimate curse of rejection, of alienation, of defilement outside of the community so that we could be accepted, made clean, and brought back into relationship and communion with our Heavenly Father. But it's not just the woman. Look at how he heals this little girl. Uh, We see towards the end, Jesus says that the little girl is sleeping. Now, the other synoptic accounts in Matthew and Luke make it abundantly clear that the girl is dead. Is Mark wrong? Is Jesus wrong? I don't think so. I think Jesus is making a point in instructing us about the nature of death. 
Just as Jesus used this term of endearment for this woman, calling her a daughter, he uses another term of endearment for this little girl. Now, sometimes things get lost in translation because this is an English translation of a Greek translation of an Aramaic expression. But what he's doing, and as all fathers know, this is one of those sweet times, Jesus is sitting down next to her on the bed, taking her by the hand, and he's saying, honey, it's time to get up. And I love what this one pastor says about it. He says, Jesus is saying by his actions, if I have you by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. There is nothing more frightening than for a little child than to lose the hand of a parent in a crowd or in the dark. But that is nothing compared with Jesus' own loss. He lost his father's hand on the cross. He went into the tomb so that we could be raised out of it. He lost hold of his father's hand so that we can know that once he has us by the hand, he will never, ever leave us or forsake us. And that's what I love. I love that that is the Christian hope in this fallen world, in this broken world, that in the chaos of nature and the pressures of supernatural forces, in the midst of chronic illness, of tragedy, and even death itself, that is not the end. We know that things are painful, that things are real, that things are hard, and that they burden us and bring us to tears many times. But we see the love of our true Father, the Heavenly Father, the true healer who brings us to himself, who accepts us, saves us, and will bring us through the most painful illnesses and darkest night of sleep to a dawn full of restoration and eternal healing in his presence, where we know we will never be separated from his love. That he himself experienced the full weight of the fallenness of this world and pain so that we could be assured of an eternity without them. That we have this good news and hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is restoring all things through the person and work of him. And that because of that, we could receive and rest in Christ where we don't earn forgiveness, we don't earn reconciliation, we don't earn anything. We just receive it and rest in what he has done. That we rest in this true healer who affirms our deepest need of healing in our relationships, our community, in our bodies, and in ourselves. But that we don't need to fear, that we don't need to be afraid because death is conquered, defeated, and overcome in Christ's resurrection. And for you, and for me, it is nothing more than mere sleep. And that's what I want us to leave with today, is that exalted picture of who Jesus is, how he heals, how we are extolled to faith in him, and how there is no room for fear. Because all we need to do is accept and rest in the Savior as he reveals himself to us like this. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is so special that we know that you hear our prayers that you hear our pains that you hear our cries that you know the full emotional weight of being in this broken world that you know the pain of illness the pain of death and how it truly affects us and as a community yet you are making all things new you are restoring things
I pray, Lord, that we will have that vision of you as a true healer, as the loving healer, as the true father, especially in all the ways that our earthly fathers do fail us and pale in comparison to you. Let us be transformed by your good news and by this time we were able to spend with you. And we pray these things in your most precious name. Amen. Using the Westminster Shorter Catechism,